Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And we drove down, I think it was the 17th, and you start to see trees blooming on your way down. And as soon as you get to the Carolinas, you see a very distinctive, uh, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it's a white, yellow flowering bush. And it's everywhere on the side of the highway. So you're making the turn back. Shout out to the Kornheiser boys. Two total stops there and back. That's Two all? One stops. each way? Wow. One each I way. stopped five it, times. We made it five hours. <laughs> they <laughs> know me at the service areas. They say, oh, Mr. Kornheiser, you're <laughs> back <laughs> again. Yes. This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. Alrighty then, we will um, we will talk obviously about the final four. Jay Billis will join us later in the show. Jeff Passan will join us first to talk about opening day. I don't want to dwell on this because that's why you have Jay Billis. I had no clue whatsoever that UCLA would beat Michigan. I thought Michigan would win that game easily. All the slurpage about Juwan Howard and how great he is. Maybe Mick Cronin ought to get a little bit of that at this point. I don't know how they want. They had one guy score more than 50% of their points. You know, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. They They weren't particularly good. Michigan, after destroying Florida State and looking great, they didn't make any shots in the last five, six, seven minutes, something like that. So I'm really surprised at that. That just makes it easier for Gonzaga. You know, Gonzaga's, you know, Gonzaga yeah. should beat UCLA very easily. But we'll get to Jay on all of those things. I did not talk about the golf last time. Also, we had a Seder the other night at the house. Tracy was over. Carol made a brisket that was very, very good, and we had a small Seder. And one of the things, and Tracy is a very religious person. Nothing She's, says Passover like Tracy Roberts. Right. She's very religious. She goes to church every day. She's quite religious and um she's okay with the wine though for pass for a seder oh yeah 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 so what what i wanted to get to was the heart of passover the heart of it for people that don't know is the gratitude to god for getting all the jews out of slavery in egypt and the way this was accomplished according to all the legends and mythologies and facts for all i know i wasn't there was a series of 10 plagues that included vermin and lice and frogs and ultimately the death of the firstborn of other people okay so these this is vengeful this is a god saying don't fool around with my guys we're not we're not having any of this and after we went through that and i talked about that i said to tracy you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a different God. It's a different interpretation. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. And I wondered if yours, if there's fire and brimstone from God, if there's vengefulness from God, if there's, you, you talking to me? Because <laughs> you know, you I'm the only one here. You talking to me? If there's that. And what Tracy said, and I don't mean to, I, I don't mean to cast aspersions on anybody, but her interpretation was, that in Catholicism, it's stick with God. You're, you're going to be okay. You know, you're going to be okay. But there's not that level of anger uh, that there is in Passover. Does any does anybody? Well, does anybody? People are listening. We'll get a whole lot of email about that. But I wonder about that. That was the the thing that interested me most. So Tracy and I talked about that during the seder. And the seder, of course, for people that don't know this, that is the Last Supper. I mean, in in the other religions, that is. 
that's actually the last You've never supper. been to a Seder until you've been to a Tony Kornheiser Seder where he likes to... We're going to move it along. Okay, I'm on we page 18. <laughs> I'm in the second graph. I'm going to pass this over to Tracy. We go we're going to start with you. Then, Carol, you're up next. Yeah, yeah. Jo- no, and Chessie, you're in the wing. We go quick, and, and we, we go quick because I sort of know what how it ends. <laughs> you know, and I want to get to it. Anyway. So, uh, wait, I got, I, we got yeah. to unpack this a little bit. One, yeah. this is what we did not have last year and what makes me happy as you sort of begin to deal with what you can do as you've been vaccinated again. This is somebody yeah. who has already yeah. been working with you and working closely. Tracy's vaccinated, yes. Uh, the three of us were vaccinated, yes. And then it makes me look back over years in, in the pre-kids uh, you know, era because I understand why you couldn't have us over yeah. uh, and because the boys go to bed early. The, the, yeah, we got the procedure of dinner we can't yeah. do, but yeah. there's nothing like having the hard work girls over for a Seder. It's always, okay, Kate, you're up. You got That's the right. four questions. Right. Over, she's the youngest. She gets over, the four. Over you know, our trip where we were with our in-laws, she starts going, she's like, okay, I'm not the youngest anymore. We can, Bootsy is almost literate enough yeah, to can't do read. questions. He can't, no, we he can't, can't read. We can him up. Oh. And Liz would always go over to Seder's <laughs> as a kid, and her mother would pull her aside and say, you can't find the Avi Komen. Right, let somebody else do that. Well, I don't even hide it anymore. I mean, we just put it on the table. Anyway, it was very, very nice. Um, I'm sure we'll get emails about that, and they'll scold me on some level, and that's fine. Uh, that's okay. I wanted to just mention one other thing. I don't know that I'm going to get to the golf that we played, but I, you know, in, in, I played in Pinehurst, and then I played in South Carolina with Michael and had a lovely time. But this sort of trumps that, and this I'm going to bring Nigel in on this. G. Gordon Liddy died. Oh, uh, yes. 91, something like that, Some something like 91. It's an A1 obit in the Washington Post, and it should be. It absolutely should be an A1 obit. Of course, so should Chuck Yeager have been an A1 obit. 90. Yes. Um, 90 years old. But we worked in the same building. Do you remember this? Oh, yes, very well. We worked in the same building as Gordon Liddy, we were on WTEM when he was on a sister station of some yes, sort. WTNT. He was on with that. Yeah, did a show. I think it was a couple hours in the middle of the day. I think TNT. It was after- that makes sense. He'd blow stuff up. That's good. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, he was always. You know, I mean, you you hear the name G. Gordon Liddy, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is you know one of the nefarious characters from this. You know, well, he was nice, it's, it's, and he was, he was one pleasant. of the nicest guys. Yeah, he was utterly nice. Now, yes. I, I, there were two stories I, I remember about him. One, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Fletch with Chevy Chase. I know what it is. I, I'm not. I never saw it. I know what he, it is though. He gives aliases throughout the entire movie. You know, just funny fake names, and one of them that he gives is G. Gordon Liddy. And Liddy had never seen this, never even heard of it. So we brought the movie in for him and got to watch his reaction to Chevy Chase sort of pretending to be him. And it was, I wouldn't say he laughed hysterically, but he did seem very amused by it, um, which Um, was fun to watch. I I had no interaction with him whatsoever except to say hello. And he worked, he did this radio show and he had an assistant. He had a a woman assistant. I, I, I don't know anything more about it. I don't know if he took calls. I don't know anything about what he did. But whenever I saw him in the building, and this was a building um, s- sort of on that side of, of Brookville Road in yes. Chevy Chase that leads to 495. There, there was a nursery right next door. There's a lot of hardcore um, stores. or They're not stores as much as they sell manufactured products on the side of the road. It's the kind of place where you go, that whole area you go, because you think you're going to get a great deal. Because it's not a shopping center or anything like that. And there's also a cake store there, of all things. There's a cake (laughs) store. Yes. But every time, and that was was when I was upset about there not being a suitable men's bathroom. (laughs) And then overnight... 
there was yeah. a suitable men's bathroom because they just changed the sign on the women's bathroom, <laughs> yes. which was bigger than the men's bathroom. <laughs> and I appreciated that. I did. But every time I saw Gordon Liddy, he said hi. Yeah. He said hi. He I mean, was very, not, yeah. you know, he was outgoing. He was sort of friendly. Now I knew who he was. I obituary. knew what he'd done. He was he was viewed by his superiors as quote a little nuts in Nixon's phrase. <laughs> well, he put his I hand mean, on a just Bunsen burner. Well, screwed on is oh. he? The president complained to chief of staff. Yeah, he put his yeah. hand on a Bunsen burner to show you how tough he was. Okay, yeah. Yeah. he is he is notorious, Gordon Liddy. But I, you know, our Nigel, you felt the same way. Our interactions were with him were very pleasant. I had more interaction, I think, than than you did with him, and he was always very, very nice. Just so you know, yeah. very understated. But I re I do remember there was some sort of comedy event, and it was one of those like DC's funniest whatever person. Yeah, and he probably appeared or something. And he was up there, and they had me open for it. So I did, you know, like oh, 10, 15 okay. minutes. And of course, improvisational comedy. Yes, <laughs> yes, Liam Neeson and I, and yeah. and because I'm an idiot. I decided to do my G. Gordon Liddy impersonation, which was like, oh, I'm the G-Man, G. Gordon Liddy. And, yeah. you know, and, and got big laughs. And I looked out on the crowd and he, he wasn't particularly like laughing all that much. So I made sure that I went over and I said, Mr. No, Mr. Liddy, you know, I respect you completely. Uh, and yeah. he, was, he was very charming. It's like, no, young man, that was very funny. Thank you very much. And uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I, it was a nice little moment. But, yeah, he was I mean, this this as you say, notorious figure, but when you yes. got to meet him, he was very, very lovely, I thought. Compact, not yes. a large man. Yes. You know, tough, tough looking and acting, but not law. I would say not more than five, seven or so or something like that. And yeah. Anyway, no, no. so as Willie Loman said, well, attention must be paid. So I just paid some attention. Um, I do want to get, I won't get to all the golf, but Michael and I got to play. Can you describe Congaree, where Bill Donnelly took us? Can you describe? It's in South Carolina. It's sure. This it's is unlike this is what the, you. This is in the Low Country. It does not have. Yeah. When you think of Low Country golf, you're often thinking of the 278 highway that goes out to Hilton Head. So you're thinking of developments, communities. You're thinking of, you know, very watered, but very what you might see, you know, on Hilton Head when you're watching. You know, not necessarily the tournament, but those types of uh, houses in the background. This is a very low-profile course. Oh, yeah. Uh, this Not is a, a single a, sign that says the name Congaree. Yeah. Again, low-profile. It's trying to play into that uh, minimalism style, though there was a lot of earth moved. And what we found out was there were a lot of mature live oak trees moved, 100-plus-year-old trees that were moved to fill these Transplanted. Transplanted. So, again, this is a, it's a Fazio course that was opened about three or four years ago. It doesn't feel like a Fazio course. It is vast. It is vast. open. It's just it's got as all big, the It's as big as an airport. It's just so big. And because of, because of the way it has been built, which is built onto the sand, you just have this fast, you know, running corridors as the ball is, you know, running all over the fairways and sometimes running into very penal areas. It has that sand. It has that pine valley, but also yes. a little bit of an Australian look to it as you're trying to hit over these clearances, which I didn't even realize uh, until I was talking to Chan and you after the round, just how stressful that was on a mid or high handicap player. Yeah, it was really nice. I'm really glad we got to play. We had the whole course to ourselves this particular day, and everybody was very kind it's to also, us. It's in the new trend where they would describe it as it has a lot of risk-reward half-par hole. So I'm teeing up. I was actually choosing my own boxes. There was no tee yeah, box they, it for doesn't, me. Like it doesn't say number one or number two or number three. You just walk to where the tees are, and you... 
No, there's you no, decide. There, there's literally not even a tee box. No. You don't have the super going out that morning saying, we're going to play number you know, number two from 370 yards. You no. go up to a box with your caddy and, and your opponents, and you sort of choose. So for me, it was fun because I was trying to balance out my distance for versus my playing competitors. Where would it be equitable for me to tee off from? And that was actually a lot of fun. So that, that, that's also like a hoopy match club. Uh, and we're, we're, I think we're actually going to see it on TV in June. It's going to be. This was the thing that, that struck me. It's going to host, we're told, the Canadian Open. Canada still has coronavirus protocols, which don't allow people in and out of the country in the same way that they do in the United States. And maybe we should have learned from Canada, but we didn't. Um, and that's why the Toronto Blue Jays and the Toronto Raptors are not in Canada, you know, because they can't. That's why the, there's a Canadian division in the NHL with just the Canadian teams and nobody else is coming in. I'm not sure it's going to be called the Canadian Open. but Oh, no? Well, I, I think they're carrying maybe the – I'm not sure who's the title sponsors. I'm, I'm, I would imagine RBC? it might be RBC RBC still. usually. So they're going to play. This is going to – you're going to be able to see this course. Now, I don't know – I don't know how to direct television, and I don't know what they're going to look for. But if they show you this course – with a wide lens, you're going to see just vast stretches of golf, and it's it's unlike what I've seen before. I really I enjoyed my I shot 400, but well, it's I also, really enjoyed it's myself. It's also different than most clubs you think of in your mind's eye, in the sense that it, it does not have a traditional membership. It has ambassadors, right? And the club was actually founded and built around a a philanthropic mission. So it'll be interesting to see how they pair that with sort of the hosting of a big PGA Tour event because it was very intentionally situated in one of the poorest counties in South Carolina and has done a lot of really good work partnering with the first tee down there. It has a symbol. It doesn't, you don't, like you bought a hat. It doesn't have the name, does it? No, it just has a symbol. Nothing says Congaree. You know, maybe it's rivers. And a mountain, a mountain and rivers. Yeah, it's, it's really... It was really interesting. It was really interesting. And a lot of people, I'd never heard of it before. You had heard of it. I had heard of it just through the grapevine because years ago, it was this super secret place that was being built because I've been going down to this area for yeah. you know 10 years now. And we when we drove to the practice round at, at the Masters in 2018, drove was, right past it. Drove right past it. Didn't no know. idea. Just you know, Didn't know. a gate. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. And then we'll get to Jim Hughes and John Engelbrecht on Friday. It's- just if you're playing Mr. Donnelly. One of the better, well, he's one good. of the better bunker players. He's really so good. Be, be careful with the dots. Yeah, I lost some money, and I mean that's you know, that's the way it should be. I lost some money on that, and he was our host. That's fine. I did notice that Michael lost some money to Chan, or Chan lost money to Michael. Anyway, no, nothing was exchanged between Michael and Chan. Nothing. Well, Chan and I have a deal, which includes uh, cooking of dinners and yeah. the pr- procuring of ingredients, and maybe also handling a caddy fee that you were unaware of. I I. I gave money to the cat. I know you did. I gave money. All right, uh, so we'll take a break. Jeff Passan will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the solo stove ad. Jim Hughes, who I just mentioned, owns a solo stove and loves it. I think Saliza owns a solo stove and loves it. Saliza should be their national spokesperson. He just loves it. Whether you're camping in the woods, which I don't do, or at a backyard get-together, which I would do, there's nothing like a roaring fire to bring you back to what matters. The things, digital distractions, and the frenzy of everyday life make too easy to forget. Warmth, brilliance, connection. Those fireside moments ground you in what it means to be human. That's really well written. It's very evocative. This is, I have no trouble with reading these lines because I think they're very good. Um, I can't give a personal endorsement of a solo stove yet because I haven't been around one, but you've been around one, 
right? You love it. Yeah, and, and there's something so nice about this. You know, we're out of winter, we're in spring, but you still have these cool evenings, and that's actually when it's best to get outside and be keeper of the flames. Yeah, it's really nice. Solo Stove creates story-worthy moments, fireside fumes not included. Everybody says this. They're all amazed at the fact that you're not inhaling all this smoke. It, it's siphoned out. They know what they're doing. Lights quickly, burns efficiently. Stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow and burn more efficiently. So little smoke, you'll wonder how there's so much fire. There's no campfire smell on your clothes or hair. It's easy to light with a few bits of starter and your fire is blazing in minutes. Solo stove, they can take it with you on the road. You can set it up on your rooftop or your backyard. No one needs a reason to gather around the fire. Solo stove just took away any reason not to. And now you can get $10 off when you use the promo code Tony K at checkout. Just go to solostove.com. And remember, you get $10 off when you use the promo code Tony K. So use the code, people. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Haroon Rashid. All the way from Halifax, England, who writes, I hope you're keeping well. You played me on the show a few times. Thank you for that. This is the title track of my upcoming album, The King of Nothing. Anyway, it's Mr. Tony. I'm thinking of getting this as a tattoo. It got me wondering if you have any tattoos. No, I don't have any tattoos. <laughs> Family rule no, no, against no. that. Yeah, you're disinherited if you have tattoos in my family. No, 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 you don't have that. <laughs> I hope you're all keeping safe and well. Thank you for keeping us entertained during this crazy and difficult time. God bless you all. Harun Rashid, the king of nothing. It's lovely. It's absolutely lovely. And it plays in Jeff Passan. And um, this is in honor of opening day, which is tomorrow, which, of course, bumps us out of ESPN and over to ESPN2, where our ratings don't matter. And we give an ESPN2 effort. Everybody says ESPN1 effort. And I go, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> Jeff, you wrote a really good story on Juan Soto. Uh, I enjoyed reading it very much. It allows me to do a little Nats talk here because I watch Soto. And I, my, my initial question is, what do you find most intriguing about Juan Soto? What, what are we potentially looking at here with him? Tony, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get over the picture of you with a tattoo. And I can't yeah, it. No tattoos. No tattoos. It was, a, it was such a beautiful song. And I'm picturing, no. you, I'm picturing you having like like tattooed a bald spot. Just put hair on top of your head. I'm sorry. All right, no, no tattoos. That. Thank you. Okay. Soto. Especially during Passover. Juan yes, Soto. decent Pesach uh, doll. We're looking we're looking at uh <laughs> at Ted Williams. I hate really? I hate doing that. I really? hate doing that. Yeah, you can't um, do that. <laughs> look, I, I, when you go back in history and you look at the greatest, and I mean the greatest players who play baseball, one common thing that they all have is that their careers started extremely early, whether it was Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, Mellot, Al Kaline. I mean, you can go on and on and on and into modern times, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, Mike Trout. Juan Soto started at 19 years old and had the best by OPS 19-year-old season in history. He then followed that up at 20 years old by really being the best player in the playoffs and followed that up at 21 years old by winning a batting title 
getting on base 49% of the time and slugging 695. Now, granted, that was in a shortened season by COVID, but still, what he has done, the combination of power, patience, and uh, just unwillingness and seeming inability to strike out, it is, I'm not going to call it unprecedented. It's just, it's Ted Williams. That That's what it is. And I, I, again, I hate throwing that around on anyone because that is literally the greatest hitter who ever lived. But that is who, in many ways, Tony, he is. This is this is very interesting to me because in in fairly recent times in baseball, Albert Pujols was Babe yeah. Ruth. His first 10 years are right there. They are just incredible. Then he signed a big deal. I'm not saying it's cause and effect. I have no idea what happened, and Albert Pujols became a good, maybe even a very good player, but not an Olympian player that he had been. So we're looking at a very young man now, and a lot of things can happen. But, you you know, that's enormous, enormous praise. Um, As somebody who followed the Nats, I always thought that Victor Robles – was considered a greater prospect than Soto. So what is it with Soto? How did it happen? Did they see this coming? No. Victor Robles was a better prospect because Victor Robles did a better job passing the eye test. Uh, Juan Soto never had that, you know, that that great body that scouts love. Uh, You know, the, the tall ass and... Uh, you know, the skinny tapered waist. He, I'm not going to say he was thick, um, but he filled out a little bit quicker and he had slower feet and, uh, the arm wasn't quite there the same way that it was with Robles. And he didn't play, uh, you know, an up the middle position. He was always a corner outfielder. Mm-hmm. So all, all, all of those different qualities that lead you to, being the best player in baseball, which is typically something that's reserved for an up-the-middle position like shortstop or center field, were not present with Juan Soto. What was present always and what remains present was the hit tool. And it, it is the center Tony of everything in the baseball universe. You can have all the raw power in the world and hit the ball 500 feet, but if you cannot connect the bat with the ball, if you do not have that hit tool, none of those other ones are ever going to show up because you're never going to be a productive enough big leaguer to allow them. And so what Juan Soto did is he had that hit tool from the start and he has worked on all the other ones. And and watch this season, Tony. He's going to steal a lot more bases than he has in the past. He spent this offseason improving his speed because the, the bat is so good right now, and it's so locked in. He feels like he can go to those other areas and get better at them. Let, let me just bring one thing up that I've noticed that a lot of people notice, and you did write about this. Every once in a while, Juan Soto looks at the pitcher and grabs his own crotch. <laughs> goes, <laughs> you, know, you know, really? Because, you know, throw the ball and let's see what happens. And it is it's a gesture of defiance. And it is a gesture of superiority. I don't know how else that could be defined. Um, and that's gone now, right? Someone talked to him. Someone said, maybe that's not the way to go. Didn't you write about that? Yeah, I think it was less someone talking to him about 
that being the way to go and him thinking to himself, I have kids watching me now. That's the way that he explained it. <laughs> okay, um, good. Because, because here's, here's the thing. He is such a nice, and, and I, I always hesitate to, to do this as well with athletes because how much do we really know them? I think he's a good kid though. I think he's a good person. I think he's genuine. I think he's kind hearted, but when he gets in the batter's box, uh, he's a monster. Like he is, it is a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. And the Dr. Jekyll, uh, or the Mr. Hyde rather of Juan Soto stares at pitchers, sneers at them, does the Soto shuffle, intimidates them, does everything he can to be a psychological uh, animal in there. And yeah. that's that's what he is. He wants to tell you this is his territory. He's going to lift his leg, and he's going to own it. That's a, okay. We're going to move on. Um, and, and I'm going <laughs> to ask you the, the obvious question. My son and I were talking about this. It seems like every single year, opening day is Scherzer against DeGrom. Uh, and... and that's the I don't think I'm wrong. This is now the best division in baseball, is it not? NL East, isn't that the best? Uh I don't know if there's a better one. There's certainly not one that has the strengths that it has. You know, I'm not as high on the Phillies as as some others are. And the Nats the Nats are very top-heavy. Like, there's a chance that the bottom can collapse out from under them just because they don't have a ton of depth. You know, second and third base haven't worked out like they were hoping. Their bullpen is a question mark. Uh, but uh, even the Marlins, who were picked to finish last, Tony, they have, like, a top-ten rotation, and they have some good young position players. So mm-hmm. they, they could surprise. And then at the top, the you know, the Mets are very good to potentially great. And I, I think, uh, you know, we forget the Atlanta Braves were up 3-1 on the Dodgers last year in the NLCS. Yeah. Like, they yeah. very easily could have won the World Series last year. Yeah. Let, let me go to a more general question, which is the virus protocols. Um, this is going to be a real season, maybe the last season for a while. They may not get an agreement after this, but everybody's fighting right. to get in as many games as, as they can get in. And there's travel involved. I mean, n- nobody travels like baseball because nobody plays as many games as baseball. It's really different yep. than football. Really different. What are the protocols? What are you hearing? What is your sense of the ability to get through a season? I don't think, whereas last year, Tony, there was significant concern uh, around every corner where there were outbreaks on the Cardinals and the Marlins that disrupted and put in peril at points their seasons. Uh, There's a lot of confidence this year because uh, a lot of people are going to be vaccinated very soon. And I think the confidence comes from the combination of spring training going as well as it did and spring training in terms of COVID has gone extremely well for major league baseball. You know, we're talking less than two dozen positives since the intake testing. And that's with tens of thousands of tests that are being taken and with people being tested, you know, every other day, sometimes more frequently than that. Um, So I, I think baseball between the players and coaches and people's ability to follow the protocols, 
uh, which are strict, and, and the knowledge that they are loosened once you reach 85% vaccination on a team, and there are going to be teams that have their Tier 1 employees uh, at 85-plus percent within the next couple of weeks. Uh, I, I think baseball either – with the knowledge that they have people following protocols or are vaccinated feels really good about the season. And uh, it, you know, to me, Tony, I, I just wrote this yesterday. I think it's going to be published sometime today to me. The story of the 2021 season, at least the early part is the fact that major league baseball is going to be the conduit that reintroduces America to the idea of large crowds. If you think about it, we haven't yeah, gotten yeah. used to this notion that we're getting back to normal, and part of getting back to normal is cramming tens of thousands of people into small spaces like stadiums, and that baseball is going to be our first glimpse at what that looks like, what that feels like, uh, how we react to that, how we respond to that. I think baseball is going to be at the center of, uh, of a very important and at times probably heated social discussion about this. Well, yeah, I mean, and I'll get you out of here on this. I mean, I'm, I watch every night, and uh, Rachel Walensky, who's the director, I believe, of the CDC, talks about her fears of a fourth wave of coronavirus and talks about the need to maintain distancing and to wear masks. And baseball is saying we're going to start with small amounts of crowds, but obviously they want large crowds. Roger Goodell of the NFL said they're going to have full stadiums. This, yep. to me, creates... You know, that there's, and I don't want to use the word panic, what it, what it creates is this race, the race to see which is going to win. Vaccinations, is that going to win, or is the virus going to win as all these people sit in the stands, right? I mean, that's, that's the thing to follow, is it not? I, I think that baseball uh, being outside is extremely helpful, and that mm -hmm. this is different than putting 20,000 people into an NBA arena or into an NHL arena. I think baseball's greatest advantage is that it is an outdoor sport. And as we have seen, the likelihood of spread outdoors is uh, mitigated so much comparatively uh, by poorly ventilated indoor spaces. And that is why baseball, uh, it, Tony, you're going to see it on Monday. I don't know if they're going to sell out, but the Texas Rangers are making every seat available wow. to Globe Life Field. And it's going to be a one-day thing. I don't get why they're doing it at this point. Maybe they just want to be the first place in America to say, hey, we open back up. Maybe it's because Greg Abbott said, hey, Texas is open for business. Let's go yeah. do this. But uh, you are going to have, if not a full stadium, then uh, pretty darn close facsimile to it. So we'll wait two weeks and we'll see what happens. Jeff, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so very much. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure, Tony. Happy opening day. Thanks for having me. Jeff Passan. I'm glad he likes the idea of me with a tattoo. Makes me happy. I'm not getting one. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> we're going to take a break and we will come back with Jay Billis and we'll talk about the final four. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the policy genius ad. April means a lot of not-so-fun things. Getting fooled, getting rained on, getting your taxes done. April starts tomorrow, I believe. This is the last day of March, right? So if you need a positive experience to balance it all out, consider shopping for home and auto insurance with policy genius. 
They can help you find home and auto coverage similar to what you have now, but at a lower price. In fact, they've saved customers up to $1,055 per year. I love that. Not 1000 not 1100 $1,055 by reshopping. Head to PolicyGenius.com. Answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property. Then PolicyGenius takes it from there. They will compare rates from America's top insurers, from Progressive to Allstate, to find your lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team will look at all the ways to maximize your savings, including bundling your home and auto policies. And if Policy Genius finds a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. I don't know what more you can ask. They'll do all the work and try and get you a deal. Policy Genius can promise that you won't leave their website feeling like a fool. They've saved customers up to $1,555 per year compared to their current home and auto policies. Head to PolicyGenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is sent to us by Michael Corey, who is the president of Detroit Cristo Rey High School, and he writes, I'm a longtime listener. I've always been jealous of the talented musicians who send in their music. I've also been jealous of the people who had talented friends and sent in their music. Basically, I'm a petty, shallow, jealous, vindictive person, but enough about me. That's a funny line. <laughs> I met Eric Carter when he transferred to Detroit Cristo Rey High School as a sophomore in 2009. After graduating from high school, he continued his education in Central Michigan. He's a graduate there. I'm blessed to be able to maintain relationships with many of our alumni. Last night, I had dinner with Eric and his fellow classmate, Chris Cleary. He told me about his music, and I thought my days of being jealous are over. His music is attached. It's true to his East Side Detroit roots. East Side Detroit might not mean anything in the Beltway, but it means something here. This is uh, called Limitless. Am I right about that, Nigel? Limitless? Yep, that is right. And this is, is this is Eric Carter. Michael, if people want to listen to the music, they can obviously do that at the end of the show, uninterrupted by my babble. But if they want to send in music, how do they do it? Please send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. And as happened here, you can get someone to send in your music for you as long as you give permission. Jay Billis joins us now. Um, I'm stunned, and I'm not going to lie, I didn't stay up and watch the UCLA game. I'm stunned when I woke up this morning and went right to the Washington Post website and then turned on ESPN and found that UCLA had won in, in what appeared to me bizarre manner with one guy scoring more than 50% of their points. You get a one, a one, and a two, and I thought you were going to get three ones and a two, and I was going to ask you about the committee, but now you get an 11, and not just any 11, because if you're old enough to remember, UCLA was the greatest basketball school in the history of college basketball for a 20-year period. What do you make of UCLA beating Michigan? Well, it was the rock fight to end all rock fights. Uh, neither team shot 40%. Uh, yeah. I think it was just one of those things, Tony, where – uh, UCLA's run has been one where the first word you think of is, is toughness. And they've been physically tough and mentally tough to uh, undergo what they've, what they've had to undergo all season long, both with the pandemic and injuries and all these things. And then uh, in the tournament, um, you know, they've had some good fortune. I mean, the last two games, they beat a two seed in, in Alabama and a one seed in Michigan. Now, Michigan's playing without yeah. their best player. Right. which is significant, but they've still been winning, and I thought they would win anyway. But in the last two games, how about this one? UCLA's free-throw defense has been spectacular. Uh, the, the Alabama and, uh, and Michigan combined went 17 of 36 from the free-throw line. That's terrible. So 
It's awful. Wow. And I think Mick, Mick Cronin is going to be doing clinics on free throw defense coming up <laughs> uh, because that, that's as big a factor in them moving on as anything. The fact that their opponents could not make a free throw. I mean, you know, and it wasn't a big sample for Michigan. They went six of 11, but, but, you know, you make, you make three free throws and you win. And uh, even as poorly as I didn't think either team played well, Johnny Juzang was great. He had 28 to your point about one player. He transferred from Kentucky. He couldn't play at Kentucky, and now he's in the Final Four. I mean, it's really remarkable. So, you know, I I understand how one person, everybody knows how one person beats you at the end of a game. Everybody remembers, you know, Danny Ainge. I mean, you go the length of the court, you win a game. But one person doesn't usually beat you over the course of a game when nobody else can shoot at all, and both teams are bad they're just bad it's just such an <sighs> michigan was great they undressed florida state they crushed florida state they were patient on shots they worked the ball they really looked like a terrific team and at the end of the game last night they had nothing at all is this explainable yeah it's explainable i mean basketball is a rhythm game and and so I think UCLA, because of how physical they are and, uh, and their ability to slow a game down, it is way easier to slow a game down than to speed one up. And when a team that plays at a quicker tempo, which Michigan does, they're, they're, not, they're not like Gonzaga fast or anything. Right. But, uh, but when they, it's, it's really easy to, or easier to slow them down. That's what UCLA does. They slow it down to a tempo that makes you uncomfortable. And, and you know, so you establish you, you, you disrupt your opponent's rhythm and try to establish yours. And Mick Cronin, you know, established Johnny Juzang really quickly. And after he hit a couple shots, they're chasing him around that. And they mm-hmm. used him as a screener actually. So he screened a couple times. In fact, got, got Cody Riley a bucket one time by after a timeout, just setting a screen. They couldn't switch it because they're so worried about him and it frees up a teammate. So, but, like, you know, people were saying, well, you know, yeah, Michigan didn't defend this, didn't defend that. They gave up 51 points. I mean, if you it's can't. Nothing. You know, that's yeah, it's a, nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. That's nothing. And, and they scored 49, which is, frankly, you know, I think most coaches would say that's kind of embarrassing with a three-point <laughs> shot that you can only, yes. you'd only put up 49 points in a 40-minute game. But that's sort of what UCLA has done throughout the course of the, the, the tournament. They have. Uh, made things really difficult on their opponents, but but it's also and look, UCLA fans aren't going to like this, but it's it's sort of what's to me what's wrong with college basketball is is that if you're if you play like that and you do it all the time, the officials let you get away with it, and sort of the idea that there's freedom of movement in college basketball is nonsense. Now uh, we had it a few years ago, but now it's back to clutch and grab. They call more fouls on moving screens than they do on people clutching and grabbing on defense. And and do I think it's bad for for the game? I do, but uh, but nobody wants to hear it after a, a regional final game. No, yeah, well, I, I mean, I I guess if you're a coach, you look at what you have and you decide there's a, a, a few paths to victory, and that may be one of them. I UCLA, and I'm old. Um, I'm happy to see UCLA, not, not necessarily in the Final Four. I was happy to see them in the Final Eight. I think there's a lot of pressure when you take that job. I am reminded, I thought they went after Rick Barnes, uh, and, and that just sort of blew up, and they ended up with, with Mick Cronin. And I, I just, you know, I wonder how, how you feel about the job he's done. And, and more importantly, sort of the mythology of UCLA 
and how difficult it has been in recent years to do anything there. Well, it's been difficult. I mean, I grew up out there, so I grew up sort of yeah. in the shadow of, of Westwood and, and John Wood and UCLA and all that. And, uh, you know, UCLA's fan base is just like every other fan base that's been successful, whether football and basketball. The, the, there's a, uh, an arrogant entitlement that goes with that, whether it's Duke fans or uh, North Carolina fans or Indiana fans, UCLA fans, whatever. But UCLA for years after Wooden um, would, would not be satisfied with doing incredibly well. Um, it had to be everything. And, and you remember like their first two coaches, Green, uh, uh, Gene Bartow and then Gary Cunningham, they, th- those guys only lasted two years each. That's right. And, uh, they were driven uh, out. And, yep. Driven yeah. Out. Went to the final four, you know, it, yeah. but, but it wasn't, wasn't good enough. And, and then UCLA wouldn't pay like they wouldn't pay coaches. And that's been, that's been part of the problem in attracting, uh, sort of the best, but, but Mick brought a different, Mick Cronin brought a different, uh, ethos in, in there. It was going to be. It wasn't going to be Hollywood or pretty. It was going to be Midwest grit, and uh, and they, you know, they're not a. Uh, they're better offensively than than Mick Cronin's teams have been in the past. Usually, his teams are defense rebounding and uh, fire a rock up to the to the rim and then go get it. And uh, but this year, his team his team scores really efficiently. They're actually better on offense than defense, but they're a lot tougher than they've been in the past. And uh, they've got good talent, not great talent, but uh, but their 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 level of grit and toughness is at a uh, much higher level under Mick. Well, they went through the state of Michigan in this tournament. They beat Michigan and Michigan State, and and that's right. something you could probably hang your hat on. I would ask this: uh, I'm not I'm not the world's greatest Gonzaga fan, um, and I've been thinking for a long time that if they were to go undefeated and win and have that immortality with only such a small number of teams that maybe that wouldn't be right. Although I watch them in this tournament and they look great. And I don't know how you, you know, I don't know how UCLA can stay with them. I just don't. Do you? Well, unless, unless the officials allow it to be a rock fight, uh, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't see it, but I didn't see a couple of these wins, but Gonzaga is a different animal. They're, they're historically good on offense. And this is the best yeah. passing and cutting team I've seen in my time in, in the game. Uh, they're next level. And, you know, USC has a really good defensive team, and they, 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 they led the nation in block shots. They didn't block a single shot of Gonzaga's. And Gonzaga, Tony, gets more, you know, you hear people talk about their offense and all that stuff, and I'm going, they get layups, man. And it's not because they throw the ball into some behemoth center. It's because of their, their transition, their passing, their cutting. It's beautiful to watch. And, and they scored more paint points in the first half, or it's actually two minutes into the second half. So the, the, the first 22 minutes, they scored more paint points against USC than the Trojans had allowed all season long in a single game. Wow. Uh, wow. It was, it, it was, it was, uh, they cut them apart. And, uh, and this team is ultra talented. They're, they're really tough defensively, which usually Gonzaga teams don't get credit for because they haven't been. Um, uh, in in certain years, but they are they are this year, and then their offense is uh, it's it's almost unstoppable. Seemingly, I think the only team that can beat them that's left it, that can score enough points to beat them is Baylor. So I'm, I watch them, and I've said this on PTI to Wilbon a couple of times. I have never seen a team create baskets near the rim that are so open so often. Like, you, coaches, you study film. Can't you stop that? 
time after time after time, Suggs in the main gets the ball to somebody who's right there and nobody is around him. You know far more about basketball than I. How do they do that? It's not by pattern. So a lot of offenses that you see are are either uh, a, a patterned offense, a continuity where they, they do the same thing over and over again, and they're trying to move the defense in order to, to get an advantage and, and have the defense make a mistake, or they're, they're kind of set play offenses where, you know, everything's diagrammed and they're trying to put the, you know, sort of like you would see a, a football play. They're trying to move right. the defense here and do that, you know, same thing. So, so Gonzaga doesn't do that. They, they have certain actions that they run, but everything's off of a read based upon what the, uh, what the defense does. And their players are unbelievably smart. And it's not like, I want to be careful how I say this. It's not just coaching. Like a lot of people say, well, they're, they're so well coached. You know, they were taught to do that. Yeah, but you, you, a lot of coaches can teach that, but not, a lot of, not all players can absorb that and not so many players. Like, they don't have a weak link out there. Their fourth best player had, had a triple-double this year. Their fourth best player had the first triple-double in Gonzaga history this year. And, and their fourth best player, I think, was the fourth best player in their league. Um, you know, they're just, it's not that they're super talented, and they are. They're unbelievably smart on the basketball floor. And I think they're smart off of it, but they're, but who cares? Like, who cares? I don't care what their grades are. We're talking about basketball. They're unbelievably smart on the floor. It's, it's remarkable. You, you just don't see that very often to have that level of basketball IQ all together and that level of, of connectivity in, in thought and deed on the floor. Uh, they just don't make mistakes the way uh normal teams make mistakes normal great teams make mistakes it's, it's they also it's really they don't beautiful they don't take a bad shot they don't they don't have well, to. Yeah, and that, no that's a great point it's it's the when you watch them play you're stunned by the quality of shot they get yes. relative to their opponents so even if they miss you're you're, you're going well the other the other team's not going to get a shot that good uh, consistently so over the course of 40 minutes there's no way they're going to win the other teams can't win because they're not going to get the, it's like, it's like if you have three foot putts all the time and the other guy's got to make 15 footers all the time, you know, you, you, the, the three foot guy's going to win. And, no, uh, and that's what, that's what you see. Every shot is good. And they're running out all the time, all the time. So Baylor, you, you give Baylor a chance. I guess you have to give Baylor a chance because Baylor, Baylor can get to the rim and Baylor's got a whole bunch of people who are seniors and juniors and have been around a long time and they seem calm, they don't panic. But I, I guess that that's the chance. But at, Gonzaga looks awfully good. They do. They are. They are. They're the best team. But Baylor's right there, and they're 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 long, athletic, and similar in character to Gonzaga as far as they they they've played together for a long time. A lot of them have redshirted. They've got they've got transfers that have come in, and and they're an isolation team. So they look for the matchup and the hot hand and go after it. And, uh, and they, can, they can beat Gonzaga, but it's still going to take a great game by Baylor and a less than, than uh, good game by Gonzaga for it to happen. Uh, but they're the top two scoring teams. And, uh, and look, we, we've said all year long, they're the top tier. Michigan joined them, but they had Isaiah Livers at the time, and he broke yes. his foot. He had a stress fracture, so he hadn't played. Uh, he didn't play in the Big Ten tournament or the NCAA tournament. So you take your best player off in any team. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm surprised in a way 
I'm surprised that UCLA beat them because I don't think UCLA is as good as Michigan, uh, although they may have proved otherwise. But um, I'm also surprised Michigan, without their best player, got to the Elite Eight. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how many teams in this tournament would have done that. Thanks so much for waking up and being on the show. Thank you, Jay. Always a pleasure, Tony. Thank you. Jay Billis, boys and girls. Also a lawyer, by the way, in case you need representation. You, know, <laughs> you want to talk basketball with your lawyer, it's the way to go. We will take a break. We will come back with uh, a jingle and some email. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Michelob Ultra read. In sports, if you think joy only happens after you win, think again. Look at the world's most successful athletes. They don't spend all their days grinding away. They take the time to enjoy themselves, like having a Michelob Ultra with friends, because they know that happiness is the key to winning and that joy is the whole game, not just the end game. In my life as a sports writer and somebody on television, I can think of two teams that exemplified this more than others. And I don't want you to get the wrong impression because to be a professional athlete means you have to work very, very hard at it. You're in an extraordinarily narrow slice of accomplishment when you reach the pros. But having fun is important as well. I would give you two. I would give you the 2019 Nats, who every time they hit a home run, danced in the dugout. And when they danced in the dugout, the camera stayed on them. And it made all of us who rooted for the team very happy. And there was a sidebar to that. If Adam Eaton or Howie Kendrick were involved in a play that resulted in a run, they sat next to each other on the bench and they did a power shift as if they were driving a car. And that, too, gave them great joy and gave us as viewers great joy. The obvious other example is the 85 Bears, maybe the greatest single-season team in the NFL when they put together the Super Bowl shuffle. And everyone went, oh, my God, you can't do that. That's going to jinx you. You've got to keep your nose to the grindstone. But no, they were the best team ever. They went through the playoffs something like 91 to 10. And even Wilbon knows how good they were, and I don't get angry when he says it. So that is the great joy that you can take from sports. Michelob Ultra, 95 calories, 2.6 grams of carbs. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. He's got your emails and your notes. Wow. To the tune of Tax Man. Sean, you did that? That's tremendous. Thank you. That's great. Wow. Did you did you do everything on that? All the singing, all the arranging, all the production, all of it? It was just me, yes. That's great. Well, you have all the equipment. That's just great. Yeah, but you have to have talent. I could have the equipment. I don't have any talent. That's great. Thank you, Sean. Uh, Nigel, the Bethesda Bagelland. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, the Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You will as well. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in. We got the bagels today. On Monday, we had the bagel sandwiches. But whatever you get, you will be thrilled. 
I guess that'll do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say she's a rich girl. She don't try to hide it. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. He's a poor boy, empty as a pocket. Empty as a pocket with nothing to lose. Sing to na-na, to na-na-na. Diamonds on the soles of our shoes. I'm a Beach Boys fan. This album, Paul Simon's album, uh, it's Graceland, right? It's Graceland. It's That's the greatest right. album ever made it's, in America. It's really good. It is. It's the greatest album ever made in America. Thanks today to our guests, Jeff Passan, Jay Billis. Thanks to our sponsors today, Policy Genius, Solo Stove, and Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and now on Odyssey. And if you get the show through iTunes, please leave us a review. Here, I'll start reading some things. Michael, we have some invites. Uh, Dear Dr. Tony, your recent drive dialogue from show yesterday um, reminded me to re-invite you and Michael to come and play Old Town Club in Winston-Salem. Number two in North Carolina behind Pinehurst, number two. I recently joined Sedgefield as well. You know the great history there. Both courses are great and easy trips from D.C. Yeah, and that's the drive. That's Peter Jennings, who I guess is not that Peter Jennings, but is no longer in Japan. Yeah. I guess no longer in Japan. And from Ryan Karchner, the director of golf at the Promontory Club. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. I'm a PGA pro from a very nice club in Park City, Utah. I consult for a group looking at a redesign of a course just over the border in Virginia from you. I visited last weekend. I had a great time with some of your recommendations. We first visited Bethesda Bagels, and it was as good as Nigel always promised. We did love them, too. We then had a 1 p.m. tea time um, at Columbia as Bob Dolan, your pro, was hosting us. What a gentleman he is. Greg, your matchmaker, told us many stories of the club and was very gracious with making us feel at home. He only put a bitter pressure of us on our first tee shot because our group was playing the back tees. My round highlight was an eagle two on the third hole from about 105 yards out. We had a great time. It'll now be easier to understand you and Michael's description. Must not have been playing the new tee up by 14. No, your rounds of golf when you play and discuss on the pod. Here's an official open invitation to come visit us if you ever find yourself in Park City and play either of our courses at Promontory designed by Jack Nicklaus and Pete Dye. Pretty good. So you know it's going to be hard. Very good. From Bruce Law in Concord, North Carolina, Tony, thank you for referencing the 60 Minutes piece on Dave Kindred. I immediately stopped the podcast. I found it online. It brought me joy, choked me up, and inspired me. A little over 13 minutes in length, but there were so many lessons taught. Lessons about aging with grace and purpose, remaining vital, especially in the face of pain and loss, closing out a Hall of Fame career with grace and dignity, shining a bright light on a sport that usually doesn't see it, teaching the youth that they matter and that the generations before them still have a voice and a uniquely articulate one at that. Now I'm challenged to ask myself what I can do in those approaching years that I don't have anything that can bring me joy, keep me challenged, and be a blessing to a community of people. What can I do to earn my milk duds? Bless you, Mr. Kindred. That's really nice. All right, this one, this is from John Schwartz. This is going to take a while. Let me, so let me just get to one other thing first, by the way. Scott in Nashville, Scott Gallisdorfer points this out. Mick Cronin. Coach at UCLA, sporting a handsome Johnny O quarter zip. In the entire coaching staff. Yeah, but did he use the code? Did he use? Can the you code? imagine? How great is that? Okay, so here, this is from John Schwartz. Monday's mailbag talk centering on the obituary of Larry McMurtry, specifically that everyone you knew, um, everyone that you knew who knew him said they loved being in his company. Got me wondering what people will be saying after reading your obituary. 
hopefully many, many years down the road. I, of course, mean beyond the following obligatory statements. One, what took Michael so long to finally snap? Two, really, just this past weekend? Three, finally, I've been waiting decades to put on a wig and give Wilbon a piece of my mind, though that last one just might be from Scott Van Pelt. But really, it's the show regulars and associated names whose final words I'm interested in. Obviously, Cindy Boren will start every sentence with Tony Kornheiser dead. And I mean every sentence. <laughs> Nigel will start to say something, but not having been allowed to complete a thought for decades without interruption will just silently trail off. Carville will start off with a well-dadgummit, but then nobody will understand anything he says after that. Lisa DeMoraes will make a return appearance to talk about your cancellation. Oddly, Devin Clark will show up just to say, I got your phantom right here with a gender-inappropriate obscene gesture. Feinstein will tell the wooden story while whipping a pair of pants around his head, punctuating it still with still a 32. Jeff Ma will just be shaking his head. Our model said it would be a Thursday. Gary Braun would say, cadaver, I don't get it. Greg Garcia will ask poignantly Tony who, and in a shocker, Phil's mom will deliver a Dennis Green-type rant comparing Cretan and Cretan. Guess which one she calls you. I like it. Marlene Dowell writes, wouldn't it be the best way to assess Cow's intelligence to see if they picked Illinois to win the tournament? <laughs> Illinois class of 71. I really like that. Uh, Dan Walsman in Damascus, Maryland. Look, I don't know if the tournament started yet or if you filled out your brackets, but my gut says go with Oral Roberts, UCLA, and USC and stay away from Illinois. Um, Rich Johnson. From Las Vegas. I wondered if Reginald was going to monetize his bracket with a little trip to Vegas. Now I see my friend Brandon Powers, owner of the Evil Pie, in honor of Evil, in honor of evil Knievel, has properly tipped the balance. Why risk the red line to place a bet at the Verizon Center when he can come to Vegas and chow down? And there's a big sign that says, Apes eat free. <laughs> Apes eat free. And it's signed, your wife's boyfriend's favorite pizza. Your wife's boyfriend's favorite pizza. I really like that. David Honstein uh, writes, can, uh, can you please let Michael know it's snowing here in Edmonton, Alberta. It started about midnight. $3.85 in coin, keys, nail clipper. Thank you and your gang of merry men and women for keeping us Might have some normal. snow tomorrow. Here? Oh, yeah. Snow? No accumulation for you. Oh, God. Andrew Bronson, Aurora, Illinois. Hi, Tony. When Jason Lockenforest said he was going to discuss his favorite non-Disney, non-Looney Tunes cartoon characters on his radio program, is that the textbook definition of, but what are you going to do on your Thursday show? <laughs> and one more from Joe Chechi or Sechi in Dunedin or Dunedin, New Zealand, not Florida, New Zealand. I directed The Glass Menagerie at a local theater. We had a very successful season and a sellout on the last night. I wanted to see the final show, so I entered the theater. The usher had asked me, do you have a ticket? I felt the power surge through my body, and those immortal words formed on my lips. Do you know who I am? She said, no. So I meekly said the director, and she let me in. I took the only free seat in the back row, and I enjoyed the show. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, remember that apes eat free and do wear white. Later, he gets the rebound, passes it to the man, shoots it, and boom goes the dynamite.
stopping. Cause I know that I'm limitless. Limitations for powers, and no, I ain't milking it. Ain't no options, it's really real. Dig deep for the nuggets, like will the thrill. Believe how what you see, you can feel the real. I don't need a pill, I was born with it. The sauce that is, it's unlimited. They know how I capture infinity. Switch. 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 Switch.